Good evening. How is everyone? Good? This evening we continue in Second Chronicles. You can turn to chapter 5, verse 2, where in Second Chronicles we continue to study about the reign of Solomon. And we're going to go through a fair amount of reading. Actually, I'm going to go through a fair amount of reading. And uh, so as we go through this, uh, I will recap and summarize. There are some practical exhortations and lessons to be found in this uh, section, but uh, we're going to go through a fair amount of scripture. So with that as an introduction, let's open a word of prayer. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And this evening I ask for your anointing upon each and every one of us. As I share, may your word go forth in power and may everyone's hearts be open, all of our hearts be open to your spirit's leading. May you touch our hearts and direct us this week as we prepare our hearts to celebrate both Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Uh, Lord, we we want to get our act together. (laughs) We want to be in the right place so that when Sunday comes around, we're not distracted from the truth of the resurrection. We're not distracted as we don't have many holidays within Christianity, but this is certainly a day of remembrance and celebration that's coming up. And Lord, we want our hearts to be in the right place. So may this evening help us to prepare our hearts. May you speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, you can turn with me to Second Chronicles, and uh, where we left off last week, in chapter 5 and in verse 2, and we'll read just verses 2 through verse 10. This whole section is about Solomon dedicating the newly constructed temple. We talked about the temple last week, now we're going to speak about the dedication of the temple. And so we pick it up in chapter 5, verse 2. Then Solomon summoned to Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. And all the men of Israel came together to to the king at the time of the festival in the seventh month. That would be the Feast of Tabernacles. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the Levites took up the ark, and they brought up the ark and the tent of meeting, and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests who were Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or counted. And the priests then brought the ark of the Lord's covenant to its place in the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark and covered the ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends extended, extending from the ark could be seen uh, from in front of the inner sanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today, and that is at the time of uh, the writing of this section of scripture. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. So let's just take a look at that. Here Solomon and the elders of Israel are directing uh, the priests to move the Ark of the Covenant into the temple. A little bit of a recap. Remember that David had placed the Ark in a tent in Jerusalem until the temple could be rebuilt. Or, excuse me, could the temple could be built. And the priests were careful to move the Ark according to the word of the Lord. David had made that mistake in the past. They placed the ark beneath the wings of the cherubim, which were carved inside the temple, within the most holy place. And we're told here that the ark, that is the box, that's what the word ark means, a box, the ark contained tables of the covenant, the tablets of the covenant. And 
We know that from the book of Exodus. Now, the cover of this box, you have a box made out of acacia wood covered in gold, and you have a cover on top of this box that's made of solid gold, and it's called the mercy seat, and it symbolized man's access to God. Notice it's called the mercy seat because God's mercy is what allows us to come into the presence of the Lord. Amen. There's so many wonderful symbols here. Last week we talked about how wood symbolizes humanity and how gold symbolizes deity. And so here you have this box made of wood covered in gold and inside the box you have the law. But the law is covered by the mercy seat which is made of solid gold. So you see the cover called the mercy seat covered the law. The law which sentenced mankind to death was covered by God's mercy. On Yom Kippur, the high holy day of the Jews, once a year, the high priest would go into the most holy place and they would, of course, uh, offer incense on the incense altar after they had made sacrifices outside the holy place in the courtyard on the brazen altar. And they would come in and they would bring a little bit, just just a little bit of blood, and they'd put that blood on the mercy seat once a year. And it was representative of the blood that cleanses from all sin. Representative, a foreshadowing of Christ's blood. Now, this cover, this mercy seat, sometimes called an atonement cover, it typifies God the Father, who mercifully sent his Son to save us. And his Son lived The law, that is, the law was contained within him. And so you have this picture of Christ as the ark, but the mercy seat of God, the mercy of God covering the ark, and through Jesus Christ, the law that we've broken being covered by God's mercy. And so symbols of God, the Father, God, the Son, who are one, but also the symbols of Christ's humanity and deity, and of course, God himself, the mercy of God, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And what is contained in the box that represents Christ? The law. But we can't keep the law, so we need God's mercy to approach his throne. All beautiful symbols. Now, the scriptures tell us in the book of Exodus and also in Numbers that there was a golden pot or container, of manna, which was placed in front of the covenant. And Aaron's rod that budded was also placed in front of the covenant. Some suggest it was inside the box. Others suggest it was next to or near the box or the ark. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews places these additional items within the ark as well. So there's some controversy about that. But at this point, we're told the tablets were all that was on the inside of this ark. Now, the glory of the Lord filled the temple after the priests withdrew from the holy place. It's so wonderful to consider that after they had done all of this, God's presence came and filled the place. Filled the place with his presence. And and we read about that, and we'll read verses 11 all the way through chapter 6, verse 2. So in verse 11, we read of chapter 5, The priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves, regardless of their divisions. All the Levites, who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Jedithan, and their sons and relatives, stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They were accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. This is all taking place outside in the courtyard of the temple. And it says, The trumpeters and singers joined in unison as with one voice, 
to give praise and thanks to the Lord, accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. They raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with a cloud, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. And then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. So this is a summary of what took place. The book of 2 Kings has further information about this. Uh, but what we, what we do know, excuse me, the book of 1 Kings. But what we do know is that God's presence, the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God filled the temple after the priests withdrew from the holy place. It was a holy place. They couldn't, they couldn't stand in his presence when the presence of God came down. So they exited the holy place. And after they had sent everything or set everything up, God's presence came down in a powerful and mighty way. Of course, all of the priests who had consecrated themselves withdrew. But now still the Levites are standing out there on the east side, praising the Lord, thanking God. It's a beautiful picture. You know, there's some people that actually believe that you shouldn't sing praise. I don't know. There's a lot of weird, aberrant teachings out there. Uh, why anyone would think that you can't sing. Or sometimes they'll say, well, you can sing, but you can't play instruments. But when you see this, you see they were doing both. So there's good biblical justification for praising the Lord with both your, our voices and with instruments. And by the way, sometimes people will say, well, instruments are okay, but not, certainly not drums, right, Anthony? Certainly not drums. But yet it says cymbals, so I don't know. I think I got to believe it's all okay. It's all according to God's word. Anyway, at this moment, and this is fascinating to me. I want to spend a little time on this. The cloud of his glory appeared. Now, the cloud of God's glory appears in the scriptures whenever heaven and earth meet. So where there's a transition between the heavenlies and the earthly, a cloud will appear. What does a cloud mean? Now, don't think of a rain cloud. Think more of, I guess, a pillar of cloud. Think more of a a very... uh, cloudy presence or, or, or an obscuring presence, almost like if you've ever seen uh, a fire, a blazing fire. We recently, a number of months ago, had that huge fire here in Passaic, and uh, the whole area was covered in a cloud, but that was because there was a fire. Think about it in that way. Think about it in terms of there, there's a fire, and the cloud or the smoke of his glory fills the place. Now, here's the thing, though, and I want to bring this to your attention. In Genesis, the smoking fire pot or blazing torch, as was described by Abraham, confirmed God's covenant with him. When, when God's covenant was confirmed with Abram, there was a smoking fire pot or a blazing torch, as it was described, a cloud, uh, confirming that covenant. There was a pillar of cloud and fire that led Israel through the Red Sea. Remember that? How about this? The cloud that covered Moses on Mount Sinai. And then there was a pillar of cloud and fire that was over the ark in the wilderness. There was the Shekinah glory of God witnessed by the prophets, and specifically Ezekiel witnessed that. He records that in Ezekiel 1, chapter 10, also Isaiah in chapter 6. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, right? I saw the Lord high and lifted up in his train, or his glory filled the temple. So we see that in vision there. Now there was also in the New Testament a bright cloud that enveloped Peter, James, and John during the transfiguration. And of course, when Jesus was taken up to heaven, he was taken up in a cloud, which hid him from his disciples. And, I mean, we always envision him kind of like sort of floating up into a cloud, like like you never ever let go of a balloon. 
you know, the kids will like to do this, and they wait and see how long they can watch the balloon until it ultimately disappears. I don't think we should think of it that way. He was taken up to heaven in a cloud, and I think this is an accurate description, what we see here. And then we know this, when Jesus returns, Jesus will come again in a cloud. So what that teaches me about this description of the cloud or the Shekinah glory of God is that that appears when heaven and earth meet. If I was going to get real sci-fi on you, I would say it's kind of like a portal, you know, or, or a transition between dimensions. But it also obscures or hides the glory of God because if we ever saw the glory of God, we would die, right? So it's God's mercy as well in that he dwells in darkness, Why does he dwell in darkness? Because as he said to Moses in Exodus 33, you can't see my glory. If you saw my glory, you would die. So he hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and he could see the afterglow, or the cloud, if you will, but he couldn't see his glory face to face. No man has ever seen God face to face. Now you say, but wait a minute. Men and women saw Jesus face to face. Well, we're talking about the Son of God who came in human flesh. When we speak of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's just more than our physical frame can possibly endure. And so God in his mercy does not reveal himself in that way to us because I think the very molecules and the atoms within our body would just disintegrate. So there you have a description, I think a more accurate and biblical description of what it means when we talk about that cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. Well, Solomon realized that the Lord's presence was within the dark cloud that filled the temple. He says so in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. He says, you dwell in darkness. And what does that mean? Well, that means that he's obscured from us. He said he would dwell in a dark cloud. And thank God he does when he interacts with us here on earth. But when we see him, we shall be as he is, for we shall see him face to face. So that day is coming in our resurrected bodies, when we'll be able to look God in his face in glory. But remember this, even the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, they cover their faces because out of reverence for God, and they worship God in that way. So just a very interesting thought. As you see the dedication of the temple, it brings to mind these things. Okay, well now... We see Solomon, he blesses the people, and I'll read verses 3 through 11. This is a blessing. It says, while the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, the king turned around and blessed them. And then he said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his hands has fulfilled what he promised with his mouth to my father David. For he said, since the day I brought my people out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have my temple built for my name to be there. Nor have I chosen anyone to be the leader over my people Israel. But now I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there, and I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart, Solomon says, to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, because it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well to have this in your heart. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son who is your own flesh and blood, he is the one who will build the temple for my name. So the Lord... I says, the Lord that has kept, excuse me, the Lord has kept the promise he made. I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel, just as the Lord has promised. And I have built the temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. There I have placed the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with the people of Israel. 
And so David, excuse me, Solomon blessed the people, remembering the promises made to his father, David. Here he acknowledges all that God had promised he fulfilled, because God is faithful. And he mentions again David's desire to honor the Lord by building the temple. It was a noble desire. And the Lord is pleased by our righteous motives and desires. That doesn't mean we're always going to be able to do the things we desire to honor the Lord. But even if we're not given the opportunity to act on our noble desires, the Lord rewards us for the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. So if you seek to honor the Lord, he will honor you. So the word of the Lord concerning David's noble desire was no. But the temple was built by David's son Solomon. And so he acknowledged, Solomon acknowledged that the Lord had enabled him to build the temple of the Lord. And then we have a lengthy prayer. I'm going to read it. It's a lot of reading. And then I'll sort of re- recap and, and cover the things he prayed for. But it's worth listening to the heart behind this prayer. Uh, as Solomon prays this, he's praying for the nation, but actually praying way into the future for the nation. He's praying for the entire nation and its history that hasn't even begun hardly. And he's looking for God to bless his people. So in verse 12, I'm going to read quite a bit here, all the way down to verse 40. Uh, As we go through this, just take in the heart of Solomon as he prays. And so we pick it up in verse 12. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands. Now he had made a bronze platform, five cubits long, five cubits wide, and three cubits high. And had placed it in the center of the outer court. And he stood on the platform and he then knelt down before the whole assembly of Israel and spread out his hands toward heaven. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on the earth, you who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. You have kept your promise to your servant David, my father, with your mouth you have promised, and with your hand you have fulfilled it as it is today. Now, Lord God of Israel, keep For your servant David, my father, the promises you made to him when you said you shall never fail to have a man sit before me on the throne of Israel. If only your sons are careful in all they do to walk before me according to my law, as you have done. And now, O Lord God of Israel, let your word that you promised your servant David come true. But will God really dwell on earth with men? The heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built, yet give attention to your servant's prayer and plead for mercy. O Lord, my God, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence. May your eyes be open toward this temple day and night, this place of which you said you would put your name there. May you hear the prayer your servant prays toward this place. Hear the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from heaven your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And when a man wrongs his neighbor and is required to take an oath, and he comes and swears the oath before your altar in this temple, then hear from heaven and act. Judge between your servants, repaying the guilty by bringing down on his own head what he has done, and declare the innocent not guilty, and so establish his innocence. When your people Israel have defeated, uh, excuse me, when your people Israel have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back and confess your name, praying and making supplication before you in this temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people Israel and bring them back to the land you gave to them and their fathers. When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because your people have sinned against you, and when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you have afflicted them, 
Then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel. Teach them the right way to live and send rain on the land you gave your people as an inheritance or for an inheritance. When famine or plague comes to this land or blight or mildew, locusts or grasshoppers, or when enemies besiege them in any of their cities, whatever disaster or disease may come, and when a prayer or plea is made by any of your people, Israel, each one aware of his afflictions and pains, and spreading out his hands toward this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place, forgive, and deal with each man according to all he does, since you know his heart, for you alone know the hearts of men so that they will fear you and walk in your ways all the time they live in the land you gave our fathers. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm, when he comes and prays towards this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do whatever the foreigner asks of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people, Israel." And may know that this house I have built bears your name. When your people go to war against, other, against their enemies, wherever you send them, and when they pray to you toward this city you have chosen, and the temple I have built for your name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and uphold their cause. And when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to a land far away or near. And if they have a change of heart in the land where they are held captive and repent and plead with you in the land of their captivity and say, we have sinned, we have done wrong and acted wickedly. And if they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their captivity where they were taken and pray toward the land you gave their fathers, toward the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name, Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their pleas and uphold their cause and forgive your people who have sinned against you. Now, my God, may your eyes be open and your ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. It's a beautiful prayer of dedication. It's worth reading all the way through. There are many things that are mentioned there. The one thing that comes out loud and clear to me is there's a lot of prayers for forgiveness. And that's what the temple was really all about. When you think about it, it was a place of sacrifice. It was a place where the children of Israel could come to seek forgiveness. You see, there's two things about the law that you need to remember. The law convicted everyone who tried to keep it of sin. As it says in that prayer, there's no one who doesn't sin against the Lord. So first of all, there was the law which convicted us and convicted all those that tried to serve God that they had fallen short. But if that were all that God did when he gave Israel the law, that would be a real mistake for us to think that that could bring any kind of joy or reconciliation or redemption. So much of what the Old Testament is about is the law, and so much of the law is not just about the law that we must keep, but the sacrifices that provide a blood atonement for our sin. So you've got two things that the law talks about. It talks about the fact that we're sinners guilty before God and that in order to have fellowship with God and atonement, in order to experience the mercy of God, there must be a sacrifice. For as the book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins. So those two valuable lessons teach the Israelites and all of us that we are guilty before God, and yet that a blood sacrifice can save us and bring forgiveness. Under the old covenant, the blood of goats and bulls and animals and sheep and 
all that they sacrificed, all that did was sort of cover sin. And it was a symbol or a type of the ultimate covering of sin when our sins would be washed away through the blood of Christ. It's a beautiful picture, and if you ignore it, you miss out so much of what miss out on so much of what the old covenant is. It points to the truth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who died on the cross for our sins. And so, so much of that comes out loud and clear in the symbolism here. As he prayed, you know, he stood on this bronze platform, which is about seven and a half feet by seven and a half feet, that is long and wide, and then it was about four and a half feet high in the outer court so that everyone could see him. And he acknowledged that the Lord is always faithful and that he had fulfilled his word to David. He also prayed that the conditional promise to David's line of succession would be fulfilled. And he realized that heaven and earth could never contain God. See, I think we think sometimes, you know, the presence of the Lord, we're in the presence of the Lord, but God's presence isn't limited to the locale. Not even in the temple. The temple couldn't couldn't really hold God in, in his entirety. It was just a place where God in his infinite, eternal wonder and awe could meet with finite man. It was just a meeting place. That's why the cloud is there. It was just a place where heaven and earth could meet. But God didn't dwell in the temple, for he inhabits eternity. If you go up to heaven, he's there. You go into the depths of the sea, he's there. Where can you flee from his presence? Where can you go from his spirit? You can't go anywhere where God isn't. And he knew that. He prayed that the Lord would respond to the prayers for forgiveness prayed at that temple. That he would judge righteously over the people of Israel at the temple. That he would respond to the prayers of repentance prayed there. And he would also uh, be responsive to their hearts when their hearts were contrite or broken before God. One of the things that he makes clear as they would pray for forgiveness and repentance and for God's righteous judgment, is that defeat at the hands of their enemies was seen as a consequence of national sin. I think that's still true today for nations. Defeat at the hands of our enemies is a consequence of national sin. Drought and famine were seen as a consequence of national sin. I think we probably would agree with that today. If God's blessings are upon us, we shouldn't be experiencing those things. But when we are, we can be assured it's the consequence of national sin. I think inflation is probably a consequence of national sin. There's plenty of national sin going around in our culture today. Natural disasters and enemy oppression were seen as consequences of national sin. Now listen, you can be a righteous person living in a nation that's unrighteous. Or you can be living in a nation that's, that, that's split down the middle, I think, in many ways, like we are, between those that are walking uh, in the light and those that are walking in darkness. And we may suffer some of the national consequences of our leaders, but God is still with us, amen? And so we can expect his grace on our lives, but perhaps not the nation in which we live. So as things happen in our world, as we experience the consequences of national sin in our culture, in our nation. Don't lose hope. That's God's mercy because it brings people to repentance. That's the idea. God could just destroy us in one shot. Maybe he doesn't. Solomon also prayed that the Lord would respond to the prayers of Gentiles prayed at the temple. That he would respond to the prayers for victory prayed toward the temple. To the prayers of, that are prayed in captivity toward the temple. And by the way, foreign captivity was seen as a consequence of national sin as well. 
That would be many years before the nation of Israel went into captivity. Uh, This is about 1,000 years before Christ, uh, around 700 years before Christ, Israel went into captivity into Assyria. And around 600 years before Christ, Judah went into captivity for 70 years. But isn't it interesting that Solomon's praying these prayers knowing that the day might come where they might need to pray in captivity because their national sin brought about God's judgment, God's chastisement. Now, sincere repentance was necessary in order to be forgiven and restored to their land. And that's ultimately what happened, and we'll see that as we begin our series of studies in a few weeks on Sunday mornings in the book of Daniel. In fact, Daniel knew the word of the Lord. He knew this scripture, and he prayed accordingly in chapter 6 and in chapter 9. He knew that if he prayed toward the temple, God would hear the prayers of his people to be released from captivity. He knew the prophecies of Jeremiah that there would be 70 years in captivity, all of which Daniel lived because he was taken into captivity at the very beginning of that 70-year time period in 605, in around about 605 B.C., So as he's now been there for 70 years, we see him in chapter 6 of the book of Daniel opening up his windows, even even though it was now at this point prohibited and illegal for him to pray. He still does that same thing he always did three times a day. He prays toward the temple according to the word of the Lord that we're reading tonight and according to the promises made through Jeremiah the prophet, the promise that the captivity would be only 70 years. So that's interesting. It's interesting. Well, he prayed that the Lord would always be faithful to respond to the prayers of his people. Now, I'm not going to read it, but Solomon also blessed the people of Israel with a benediction recorded in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 54 through 61. You can read it there if you like. There was more that was uh, shared, but uh, not all of it's captured by this particular book, Second Chronicles. But again, you can go to 1 Kings chapter 8 and see that there was more. Uh, more prayed and more benedictions that were shared, or a benediction that were shared. Well, then we get into verse 41 and 42 of this chapter, and we see that Solomon prayed that the Lord would bless now that the ark rested in the temple. Look at verses 41 and 42. Now arise, O Lord, and come to your resting place. You and the ark of your might, may your priests, O Lord God, be clothed with salvation. May your saints rejoice in your goodness. O Lord God, do not reject your anointed one. It's interesting, that that word, anointed one, in Greek would be Christ. In Hebrew would be Mashiach or Messiah. O Lord, do not reject your anointed one. Remember the great love promised to David, your servant. And so if you read Psalm 132, verses 8 through 10, you'll recognize the language there. Uh, a, lo- a lot of this is, is carried over from the Psalms, and that portion of that Psalm was sort of uh, maybe a, a little different, but basically it was shared at the dedication of the temple. And he's praying as the ark rested in the temple, praying that the Lord's presence would rest there where the ark would rest, that the meeting place between God and his people would be there at the temple. Praying that the Lord would clothe his priests with salvation praying that the Lord would cause his saints to rejoice in his goodness, and praying that the Lord would not reject him as king or reject the promised king, the son of David, but that he would remember his promises to David. And so you have that right there again, recorded in Psalm 132, but also in chapter 6 here 
in Second Chronicles. And then something awesome happens, as if that wasn't enough. The Lord now sends fire from heaven. Now, this is a little different than the cloud we talked about. For the cloud in the scriptures is the meeting place between heaven and earth. But when fire comes from heaven, generally it's to light the brazen altar. Now, we saw that in the wilderness. It's quite a bit different. Uh, I always think of fire from heaven as lightning. So, sort of lightning from heaven that causes fire on earth. A little bit easier to understand. It makes a little bit more sense than just sort of fire, you know, a fireball coming down from heaven. It's that lightning that comes down and causes fire. I think you might think about it that way. But of course, I wasn't there, so I don't know. I'm just, I think about it that way. Uh, but let's read in verses 1 through 3. When Solomon finished praying, so now they're all in the courtyard, right? They're not inside the temple. They had already left the temple because the cloud had filled the temple. But when Solomon finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So you have two things happening here. The glory of the Lord filling the temple and the fire coming down from heaven. They had all these sacrifices laid out on the brazen altar and the altar is lit by God from heaven and it consumes all of the consecration offerings on the altar, on the brazen altar, which is outside the temple in the courtyard. And it says the priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. And we knew that already. Uh, And then we read on, when all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, that would be that pillar of cloud and fire, the Shekinah glory of God, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground, and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His love endures forever. Now, isn't it interesting? So many people will talk about the judgment of God and the law of God when they think of the Old Covenant. And yet, what is it that they're saying? His, he is good, and His love endures forever. Don't let anyone tell you that God's love isn't the priority and the preeminent theme in the Old Covenant. It's his love, the mercy. We talked about this already. But as they see this all happen, it's just amazing because, I mean, what would you do if you saw that happen? And by the way, I'm beginning to think the more I read about the Shekinah glory of God above the temple here uh, that, that happens at this moment, that was above the tabernacle for the many years in the wilderness, I'm beginning to think that Perhaps that Shekinah glory of God stayed above that temple right up until the time of Ezekiel. When Ezekiel records the glory of God lifting from the temple, going toward the east and leaving the land. And the reason for that, and and this is what Ezekiel communicates. Now, he saw that in a vision, but that might have actually happened at that time. You see... The priests were wicked, and the people had turned their hearts from God, and they, they, they were using the temple as a place of harlotry and, and uh, revelry and for, for, for all types of different sins. And Ezekiel records this. God revealed that in the hearts of the people. And all kinds of wicked, occultic things happening in that temple. And naturally, the glory of God removed itself from the temple. So I, I kind of believe, and it, I, this is how I'm reading this, that the glory of God came down upon the temple here and then left during the time of Ezekiel. So during that whole time, God's glory was above the temple in Jerusalem. That must have been an impressive sight. So, 
The Lord sent fire from heaven. All the burnt offerings are consumed. Now, we've talked about this. A burnt offering was a consecration offering. It was completely consumed upon the altar. It was a sign of total consecration. And it was a a sign of total consecration to the Lord that happened during this dedication. The glory of the Lord once again filled the temple, which prevented the priests from entering. And the people responded by worshiping and giving thanks to the Lord. A time of consecration. Okay, then in verses 4 through 7 we read, Then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord, and King Solomon offered a sacrifice of 22,000 head of cattle and 120,000 sheep and goats. So the king and all the people dedicated the temple of God. The priests took their positions, as did the Levites, with the Lord's musical instruments, which King David had made for praising the Lord, and which were used when he gave thanks, saying, His love endures forever. Opposite the Levites, the priests blew their trumpets, and all the Israelites were standing. And Solomon consecrated the middle part of the courtyard in front of the temple of the Lord. And there he offered burnt offerings and the fat of the fellowship offerings, because the bronze altar he had made could not hold the burnt offerings, and the grain offerings and the fat portions. So they were sacrificing so much. And by the way, these fellowship offerings were a time of fellowship with God. So portions of the animal were consumed upon the altar, like the consecration altar, but the larger portion of the animal was cooked and given to the people. So this was actually how everyone was able to celebrate the feast before the Lord, that this is how they were fed. They, they, they ate the meat of the animals, but the innards and the uh, other parts of the animal were consumed upon the altar. The idea is you're having fellowship with God. You're eating the animal. God is consuming part of it. You're consuming part of it. So it's called the fellowship or peace offering because you have peace with God and you're experiencing fellowship with God through partaking of the animal together with God. So that's what that's all about. Uh, It was expressed, bless you, it could be offered as an expression of thankfulness to the Lord, and indeed it was. And it could also be the result of a vow or a free will offering to the Lord. So this was all about fellowship with God, a relationship with God. After you consecrate your life to the Lord, you then experience a relationship with God, fellowship with God. And when you have committed a sin or a transgression or a trespass, the idea under the Old Covenant, was then you would bring a trespass offering or a sin offering. That's not what we're talking about here. But you would bring a sin offering. And the idea is that animal would be consumed on the altar, but the portion of the meat that was not consumed after it was cooked was given to the priests and the Levites. So you didn't get that. That went to support those who tended to the temple and and led the people in worship. So there was a whole system here of sacrifice, and it wasn't just waste. Okay, and not that a consecration offering is waste, but it, it's like it wasn't just they just burned up all these animals and everyone went hungry. Okay, so I just want to explain that. It makes a lot more sense when you take the time to to research it. Well, this was done again to symbolize fellowship with the Lord during the temple dedication. We see the priests standing on the east side of the altar, giving praise and thanks to the Lord. And notice trumpets are now involved there. So now you can say wind instruments uh, in addition to stringed instruments in addition to cymbals and drums and basically any kind of instrument you can imagine can be used to praise the Lord. Even electric guitars, imagine that, electric guitars, right? Okay, five-string banjo. Five-string banjo can be used to praise the Lord. Well, here Solomon consecrated the part of the courtyard 
the greater part of the quarter, just to accommodate the great numbers of offerings. They, they didn't have enough room, and for this special occasion, they were just sacrificing the animals and, and doing this all throughout the entire courtyard. They needed the room. Uh, and then Solomon, all Israel, observed another feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, at this time. And in verses 8 through 10, and that's it for tonight, we're just going to look at that. So Solomon observed the festival, that is, the festival at that time, for seven days, and all Israel with him, a vast assembly of, of, of people, people from Libohamath to the Wadi of Egypt, that is, from the north to the south of Israel. On the eighth day, they held an assembly, for they had celebrated the dedication of the altar for seven days and the festival for seven days more. And on the 23rd day of the seventh month, he sent the people to their homes joyful and glad in heart for the good things the Lord had done for David and Solomon and for his people, Israel. And so there you have it. They celebrated not only the dedication for seven days, but then the Feast of Tabernacles, which was at that same time. And this Feast of Tabernacles is talked about in the scriptures. You can read about it uh, in various different scriptures. I I think Leviticus 23 being one of them. Uh, They celebrated this dedication from the 8th to the 14th month, and then the Tabernacles from the 15th to the 23rd month of the month. So you have this two-week time period of feasting and worship and celebration. And then the people blessed him and rejoiced for all the Lord's many blessings as they returned home. You see, when we come together in the Lord's presence, you should go home blessed. You should receive. Oh, oh, you come to the Lord and you consecrate your heart to him. It starts with that act of worship, an act of consecration. That's why when we come together, I mean, we don't actually do animal sacrifices because there remains no more sacrifice for sin. Amen? It's finished. But when we come together, the, the, the pattern of worship is the same. We come in and in praise and worship, we consecrate our lives, surrender our hearts. It's what worship means. We consecrate our lives. We give our lives to God afresh and anew. But it doesn't end there. We don't just come in, sort of consecrate our lives and then walk out the back door. We want to experience sweet fellowship with God, the peace offering, the fellowship offering. And maybe present in our hearts, if you will, the sin offering. That is, acknowledging that Christ died on the cross for our sins. We don't need to present a sin offering because he died for our sins. Our sins are forgiven. But acknowledging, confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, and acknowledging Christ's sacrifice for our sins. So really, worship hasn't changed at all from the old covenant to the new covenant, except that Christ's blood has been sacrificed for us. And as we celebrate in this holy week, we're recognizing that truth. That's really the same thing, really. And what did the people do? They rejoiced. They fellowshiped together with God. They did this for two weeks. And then when they did go home, did they go home all bummed out? No, they went home with joy in their hearts. You know, the moment of extreme joy should actually be when you leave church, not because church is over, but because you've received so much. Oh, he finally got done preaching. No, no, no. the, The reason you go home filled with joy is because you've consecrated your heart. You've fellowshiped with God and with one another. You've worshiped God. You've praised God. You've received from God. You've experienced God's forgiveness through confession. And now you get to go home filled with joy knowing you've met with God. And you get to come back again this week on Friday for our Good Friday service. 
And then again, of course, on Sunday for our Resurrection Sunday service. So we've got a great week ahead of us. This was just day one. <laughs> and uh, we look forward, not quite two weeks, but we look forward to more time together praising the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us and instructing us and applying your word to our hearts. As we look at the prayer of Solomon, we realize that needs to be our heart. When we fail, when we are suffering the consequences of our sin, may we cry out to you and be forgiven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.